Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 303 The Next Generation of Enlightenment. In this episode, we speak with author and scholar Jay Michelson about evolving Dharma, his latest book on meditation, Buddhism, and the next generation of enlightenment. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, back again for another Buddhist Geeks interview. And I'm joined today by a very special guest, a friend colleague, um, just a really special guy, Jay Michelson. Jay, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah. It's about time too. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it's been, it's been a long time coming, but i um, really excited to chat with you today. And um, uh, maybe I'll say a little bit about your background for those who aren't familiar with your writing and your work yet. Um, Jay is a scholar of Jewish studies and also a practicing uh, what would you? How would you describe the practice that you do in Judaism? Is it non non dual Judaism? Is it Kabbalah? Well, like how how do you, how do you describe that part? Yeah, I put on my um, on my Facebook profile that I'm a non dual Buju Dharma fairy. <laughs> okay, so that captures several things going on. Um, yeah. the, the the boo part is that you are a meditation teacher in the Mahasi Sayada uh, noting tradition. Um, you're also a leader. Uh, I guess this is probably the fairy part of, of uh, your leader in the uh, LBGT community. Yeah. And um, your last book was called uh, God versus Gay, uh, The Religious Case for Equality. Um, you have several other books before that. Um, and then your latest one, which we wanted to kind of talk about some of the, the themes and topics within, uh, is Evolving Dharma, Meditation, Buddhism, and the Next Generation of Enlightenment. So... Yeah, really cool title. I'm excited to chat with you about it. And, you know, the first thing I noticed as I was uh, kind of reading through the book was um, that your past books, um, in terms of the themes that they explore and the topics, this seemed to be kind of like a little bit of a, of a topical departure. Um, and I was curious kind of where the idea arose um, to do a book uh, on the topic of uh, Dharma. Yeah, uh, that's a great kind of first question. Of my five books, three of them have the word God in the title. <laughs> That could definitely turn off a lot of potential readers. Um, you know, I think for me, this was really the book I wanted to write. Uh, the last one, God vs. Gay, was really a mainstream book, and it sold pretty well. And I did over 80 uh, speeches about it, you know, around the country, which is a crazy thing to do. And, you know, that's not my ambition for Evolving Dharma. I sometimes think that there's about 13 people in the world who will really like it, but they'll really like it. <laughs> and I think all 13 may be watching this uh, this um, broadcast right now. On exactly, exactly. So, you know, that was, it, it was, it's funny because as I've gone around to different environments who know me from my past work, this, you know, that my practice has really impacted everything, right? So it's impacted my activism. So I've told like the witty anecdotes, which are, you know, part and parcel of being on book tour, of being confronted by outrageously homophobic people and using my meditation practice to respond in a way so I could actually win the debate rather than just, you know, be reactive. Or, uh, you know, on the religious side, you know, when I was doing a little bit more on the Jewish side than I am today, uh, you know, how meditation like played into that and enabled the rituals to actually be felt more intensely and 
kind of audited the kind of theology to get rid of the stupid stuff. And it's funny because it's been in the background for all of these other books, but I, I really wanted it to be in the foreground um, of this one. Nice, nice. No, it's a, uh, it's an exciting topic, and it is interesting from my point of view. You know, having started the podcast uh, seven years ago, um, that at the time, you know, no one was talking about the people that are in this book. Uh, really, most of the people you mention are people that came onto the scene, like people became aware of in the last several years. So it's pretty cool to see someone kind of studying and and exploring and talking about and writing extensively about some of these new kind of people and communities and figures that are emerging in kind of uh, what you call next generation of enlightenment. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, part of my background actually that uh, they didn't mention is um, I have a PhD in religion. So like, I'm a, like a professional scholar of religion, supposedly. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's better than, you know, some friends of mine went to divinity school and they got a master of divinity degree, which I think actually sounds way cooler. Um, so I, I wanted to get there first, actually. I, I admit one of my ambitions for the book was to kind of say that there's something new going on that it's been, you know, it's been on blogs and it's been in an article here and there. Obviously, it's in Boutique. You know, I think you guys really know about some of this next generation stuff, but it's not, it's definitely not in the academic thinking of contemporary Buddhism and it's definitely not in the boomer communities either. You know, they're just not aware you know, of what's going on and of, of what the changes are. And that too, you know, it's just really exciting. I mean, I, I first met, you know, Kenneth Folk when he was like living in a garage over a garage at IMS, you know, and then living yep. in, living in Beth's uh, parents' basement for a while. And it is really gratifying to kind of see, um, you know, see the, the flourishing of these kind of emerging Dharma communities. And it's fun now, you know. There's even like the reaction against and the backlash, and uh, you know, every day there's some other critical article either about neurodharma or you know, this or that innovation. And that's clearly a sign of success. Huh? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, I noticed the same thing. Like, uh, it seems like in the beginning of a movement, there's a lot of kind of uncritical, ex, uh, you know, excitement, and this is all great. And then following that comes a, a wave of criticism and kind of getting real and, Hey, wait a second, are you guys considering this and this and this? Um, so it is cool to, to look at it from that perspective as being a, a kind of uh, success as a kind of development or evolutionary kind of sign yeah. and you know i think one of the things I, I wanted to do in the book too is that maybe it's a little more heretical for, for buddhist geeks is to try to suggest that a lot of the evolutions in the contemporary dharma can be seen in the same way including mindfulness and you know the really vulgarized secularized bs kinds of mindfulness that we see a lot including the kind of let's just say the excesses of some in the technology community uh who are like super into supposedly superly into mindfulness um and I, I actually, I, I don't want to be Pollyannish about it, but I actually do think that even these things are for the best. I think they're really good gateway drugs. And my hope is that, you know, 10% of the people who get into mindfulness actually take on serious practice. That could be really powerful. And, you know, I was sitting with um, Dan Goldman recently, an author of Emotional Intelligence, and his new book just became a New York Times bestseller, which Evolving Dharma probably will not. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, he said, you know, I, I, I talked to him about, you know, is there like a fork in the road between secular mindfulness and serious practice? And he really felt that there was, you know, he's like, look, this isn't Buddhism that's going on in the mainstream. It's something else. And he defended it because it's like it's still it's still mitigating suffering, it's still lessening suffering, even if it's suffering of, of jerks, right? People who we want to have suffer. Am I allowed to say assholes on a, on a Buddhist podcast? Yeah, absolutely. You know, 
those are like people whose suffering we're lessening and we may not want to. But I actually think that the forks do converge. I mean, I really do sort of believe that dedicated mindfulness practice will, you know, make mindfulness, like secularized mindfulness. That's not, I don't mean secular Buddhism. I mean, like top mindfulness. Even that, I think, leads to certain kinds of openings and certain kinds of lifting of veils of ignorance that for some percentage of people, you know, might lead them to take practice more seriously. Right, right. I mean, you were mentioning in the book, um, Willoughby Britton's research and the uh, varieties of contemplative experience and how many people she's finding in her research, um, they're meditating in the sort of pop mindfulness way. Um, but then at a certain point after doing it for a while, suddenly things shift or can shift. And then suddenly they find themselves kind of looking for different kinds of material that I guess we would consider more hardcore, uh, kind of more, uh, kind of deeper contemplative type materials. Yeah, and as you know, I mean, Willoughby uh, sees it from the dark side, right? And her, in her sure. theory, like, people are doing um, MBSR, and then all of a sudden, like, the shit hits the fan. You know, they have some powerful experience that they understand is really negative, and on its, you know, on its surface, it's really difficult. And they have no orientation to the developmental maps that are out there, and no sense of, like, wow, this is actually part of the practice and not you're cracking up. I mean, I think for me, I'm actually still skeptical of that data. I have, I'm still waiting for that. Like, really, people just doing MBSR and through the dark night. Um, but definitely, I, I know firsthand, you know, a lot of stories of people who do that kind of practice. And then, you know, they want to take it to the next level. And they might not go off and, and do a Mahasi retreat for, for six weeks or three months. But they, but they might actually show up at their local Zen center and just see what it's about. Yeah, yeah. No, it, uh, just just to reference back, we we did a, a Geeks of the Roundtable dialogue with Willoughby and Daniel Ingram recently, and they they got into just this question of how easy or hard is it to to get into what they're calling the dark night stages. So, um, so if people are interested in that. At, le- at least there's some conversation happening around it. You know, the other thing I wanted to bring up is that in the book, uh, one of the in, kind of most interesting areas that you explore, kind of from my point of view, is um, this notion that there are these new kinds of Buddhist communities emerging. And clearly, you know, Buddhist geeks uh, maybe is part of that. Um, what we're doing with uh, kind of virtual cloud-based sanghas, as we, as we call it, is I think part of that. But I was curious, as you were starting to research a kind of a broader landscape of communities, um, what were the kinds of characteristics that you were noticing of these new kind of Buddhist communities? And in particular, um, how are they connected to and perhaps different from what's come before in terms of uh, the more boomer Buddhist institutions? I think there's maybe two key pieces that I found in common looking, looking at Buddhist geeks and looking at Dharma Overground and looking at intentional communities and social justice focused communities and like a lot of the different kinds of models that are there. Um, and the two have to do with uh, a circle and the sensibility. The first, uh, the circularity rather than the linearity, almost all of the emerging communities that I've come across that are really vibrant, diverge from the sort of standard hierarchical model where there's the teacher up here with the information and the passive uh, students who are receiving it, right? And it's that that very old school hierarchical download of information. And interestingly, you know, I was just, uh, I, had, I had a coffee this morning uh, with the executive director of New York Insight, which is not an emerging community in the traditional sense, right? It's part of uh, the sort of Insight Meditation Society universe. And she actually felt the same way. I mean, I think this is trickling into the mainstream very quickly. Uh, that this idea that you know the generation of uh, of, I, of the iPod and of Spotify uh, and of Occupy and of food courts rather than restaurants are going to want some expert to curate their experience that just doesn't fit with how people are living their lives. 
in any way, right? It doesn't fit with like Facebook and Twitter, let alone, you know, with the serious ways in which we configure our political lives. So that lack of, that move away from hierarchicalization was one. And then I think one of the things that you and I have talked about is, well, how do you, you know, how do you deal with expertise, you know, different levels of expertise within, you know, outside of that traditional hierarchy? It's obviously, you know, there's a benefit to having experts inform beginners, but can we do it without the power games and all that stuff? And the second piece, it'll be shorter, is just, I think that sensibility, the touchy-feely, love, light, uh, dew drops on a, on a leaf sensibility, um, that just is less resonant for folks who are not of that generation. I, I don't, you know, I still do find younger people who are into meditation because it makes them feel sweetness and light, and that's, they want to have those mind states, and so, great, you know, that's fine. But more and more, it's, it, there's less patience for the cheese. And I certainly look forward to that, you know, where there's just not a, a single cultural trapping that envelops all of the dharma. And, but, you, you know, I think that change is, is slow in coming. Um, it's even interesting, like at Wisdom 2.0, for example, which styles itself as like, you know, next generation and stuff. You know, the teachers who really bring home the bacon in terms of like, who are the big draws? do sometimes have that more traditional uh, sensibility around them. Yes, yes. Okay, cool. A couple things there I wanted to go into with you. Um, so going back to your first point about um, the generation, I think you call it a uh, generation that's practicing I-spirituality. You know, uh, this group of people who are curating, in some sense, their own uh, streams of media, their own kind of uh, they're kind of choosing who to pay attention to and in what way. And then there's this piece of the uh, kind of expertise or hierarchy or kind of, uh, you know, higher and lower in terms of knowledge. So I was just thinking, you know, the, the examples that you gave, Facebook, Spotify, Twitter, things like this, um, is so interesting because even on those platforms, you have uh, obviously people who are paid a lot more attention to um, you know, the millions of followers, people with millions of followers on Twitter or uh, or Facebook. So so clearly there's already built into those systems. There is a, a kind of hierarchy of attention. And um, and yet it, it's it's different. It's not structured in the same way in terms of I go to Facebook and Facebook tells me who I should pay attention to and what, you know, what, what I should understand. So um, it, I just wanted to kind of explore that with you because it is interesting that you do see kind of hierarchy within this much more decentralized, uh, self-curated systems. Well, and I think that's, you know, probably the clumsiest rollout of Facebook's many clumsy rollouts uh, was the attempt to kind of curate your, you know, your main, the river there, the mainstream. Mm. And, you know, based on the people they thought that you'd find interesting. And at least in my friend cohort, you know, most of us thought they got it wrong, right? I mean, they weren't actually, they may have been picking people who they thought we had the most in common with or something. But I think, Hopefully, you know, the next generation, both of that particular product, but then maybe of other ones that come to replace it, will give a little more agency so that I can curate it, you know, and a little bit and see who else is curating what. And, and it'll feel a little bit more like actually like the way that Spotify does it, a little less like the way, you know, someone tries to tell you who they, who they think is important to you. But I think that's right. And it, it should be natural and it should be social that, uh, you know, the, I don't want to say the cream rises to the top or something, but just people who have expertise in a certain area. You know, I think one of my interviews in the book, um, there's a lot of interviews with some of the people who you've interviewed, uh, Daniel and Kenneth and others. And, you know, Kenneth said, yeah, of course, I set myself out as someone who knows something about this subject, but that's very different from a guru. And Mm. I think that's right. You know, I I just find the whole guru thing, I've noticed over the last few years of my life that 
I have a higher anti-authority threshold than most people. Like, I just really don't like to be told what to do and to sit in rows. I'm probably more than most. But even so, I think a lot of, certainly a lot of creative people, you know, don't want to sacrifice their autonomy to some guru. And I have met guru followers and they're super into it and they love it and they trust everything. They trust their guru. And that's fine if that model really works. I just think it's it's also incredibly susceptible to abuse. And and for me, I, I think it's kind of gross. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not the way I live any part of my life. Like the films I see or, you know, the spirituality that I practice or the Buddhism that I do or like there's no part of my life that is organized that way. Yeah, I mean, and I think just looking around, it's pretty easy to recognize that that traditional model in a modern context just time and again fails dramatically. I mean, I've just recently in the last few months had a couple friends who are part of a guru uh, community and the whole thing just got torn asunder and it was um, ridiculously painful and confusing um, for everyone that was involved. And obviously an example of how it doesn't work to have that kind of absolutistic, you know, top-down um, pyramid model uh, transposed into, you know, a context where, you know, really for the past few hundred years, we've been breaking that kind of thing down culturally. Yeah. And I think there's this weird, I think, I think it's bound up with this kind of weird orientalization as, and exoticism of like the Indian teacher or the Tibetan guru or something like that. You know, these are cultures, Indian, Tibet, and Japan, in particular, Burma, also Thailand, you know, that have a monastic tradition that's developed organically over hundreds, even thousands of years. And to just import that into the West, we've seen what happens. And I think part of the reason why it is attractive is this kind of dark, you know, Yodaization of the meditation teacher. Like, <laughs> I want I want the Asian teacher with the funny accent who I have to do these exotic things to, and I have to, you know, because I want this kind of exotic adventure. Um and I, I think that's a, a really immature place to be. And I, I just, uh, maybe I should say, obviously, I don't want to stereotype students to teachers or obviously not Asian teachers or not all. But I think there is this pattern of I want the teacher to be, you know, this Yoda figure so that I can sacrifice my own responsibility for my own practice. Whereas when you go back to the original teachings, obviously, yeah, you have a teacher. But I mean, the Buddha over and over again, you know, find out for yourself, try this for yourself, see how this works transposing the traditions into different cultural contexts, not insisting on a particular form over and over again. So there's at least precedent for a less hierarchical model. And I think, you know, the last piece on this, you know, this might be a matter of taste or something for some people, but uh, Rita Gross, the kind of Buddhist feminist, has written really well, I think, and persuasively to me, on the, the problematic gender issues with Buddhist patriarchy. Mm. And so even if even if we think it's just a matter of taste, it is also a matter of justice when a lot of people, and they tend to be male people and they tend to be, you know, various forms of privilege and they tend not to, not to be fully representative uh, in terms of diversity, racial, ethnic diversity. When some people have that level of power, there's also a justice concern in addition to the kind of, you know, sketchiness of it. Mm, okay, great. Kind of, I guess, building off of what we've already been talking about here, one of the things I was struck um, by as I read the book was also that the way you were sort of characterizing Buddhism as it's evolving is is as a kind of radical self-questioning that, that the tradition seems to be going through and the people within this so-called tradition. Um, questioning of myths, uh, of past dogmas, 
of the supremacy of certain models or the universality of them, you know, the universal dharma that applies to all people. Um, what do you make of this questioning process that you seem to be describing? Um, does this seem like uh, overall a, a fairly positive move or are there some things about this questioning that could potentially uh, lead to some um, potentially destructive and maybe uh, in some sense, I, I want to say like a loss uh, or an overreaction to some things. Um, just curious kind of how you're seeing that process of questioning. Yeah, it's definitely both. And yeah, mm -hmm. there's definitely the, you know, the, the perspective, the possibility of new ideas and, you know, more ferment and more skepticism and more self-reflection and of watering it down and of missing something. You know, the biggest example of that probably was that the very wise, and I, I say this sincerely, I think it was a very wise idea of some of the first Western importers of Buddhism to kind of just focus on uh, the cultivation of mindfulness and meditation and not focus on Buddhist ideas about virtue and, and the ethics and so on and so forth. But when you strip out this one piece from the whole, from Sila Samadhi Panya in the, in the Theravadan context, um, ethics, uh, concentration, and wisdom, when you just strip out one piece, you know, you are left with, with an incomplete vehicle. I and mean, it doesn't work. It just doesn't run. And uh, it leads to all kinds of bad results. And that's just one example where it can lead to the dark side. But I think, you know, I don't think this is a Buddhist phenomenon. I, you know, I, I have studied other religions in my professional work. And, you know, there's this tension always between the kind of world-maintaining, institutionalized religion piece and the world-destroying, non-institutional kind of spirituality or mystical piece. And I, not, I don't want to use the word mysticism to describe kind of what we're talking about in meditation, but it's, it's that impulse, which it tends to be more um, driven by autonomy and by your experience and sort of disregard some of the structures that may be in place. It's certainly unmediated. It's not meant to be something that, you know, the priest or rabbi or monk or roshi, you know, hands down to you, right? It's your, it's your practice that you're doing. And those tendencies, they exist in Judaism and Christianity and Islam, also in, in Hinduism and obviously in Buddhism as well. And they've always been that dialectic. You know, the first couple of hundred years of Zen in Japan radically you know, uh, anti-authority and questioning and tearing down destructive conventions. And then it became a state religion and its job became to maintain conventions and the power structure and the financial stability of the Zen temples and the, you know, and, and they got involved in imperial politics and in war. And this just seems to happen all the time. And, and it seems to be how organizations and ideologies happen. And it's not just religion, right? It's also true for political ideologies, right? So the uh, Occupy starts out one way and turns into something else. Or the, you know, the Tea Party starts out as some, you know, radical band of crazy lunatics and then takes over the Republican Party from the, you know, uh, from within. So it's not, it's not, uh, it's it's this phenomenon between, like I was, I was calling it, world maintaining and world destroying. And it's that dialectic that I think we're living in. Yes. And, you know, so one thing that's very interesting to me about the dialectic, you know, between uh, what you're calling world maintaining and world destroying, or, you know, Jack Cornfield talks about, you know, conserving and adapting. Uh, I think it's pretty similar. Um, you know, it's not just that that dialectic has always been kind of happening, which, I mean, clearly it has been happening, but it's also that it's happening in a new kind of context that we don't have really much reference points for, you know, where things seem to be changing, not over generations, but over years. So yeah, that, I mean, that's fascinating. That's absolutely the case. You know, the pace of change has just radically increased. I mean, it is, this is kind of a banal point now, but it wasn't banal, what, 15 years ago, you know, in the sort of early middle days or of the internet. 
you know, the fact that literally at the, at, you know, one click away from esoteric wisdom that used to be completely unavailable to all but the elites of whatever tradition, you know, and that's true for the secret tantric teachings or the secret Kabbalistic teachings or whatever, not, you know, and, and it's now that those barriers are down. And so these secret esoteric traditions have had to really work with that. And that's true in the Dharma as well. I mean, I think, you know, just bringing it back to home, you know, you and I have talked a lot about some of the developmental models in meditation practice and maybe they're useful and maybe they're not and so on. You know, those just as recently as the 1970s, 80s and 90s. And still now, if you go to the mainstream Western Theravadan Dharma centers, those maps are secret, <laughs> you know, like they're not discussed. And so you can't really have the conversation of, is this a good map or not? Because you don't know that it even exists, let alone the details. You know, now, if you choose to, if somebody tells you about it, you Google it and you can come up with any number of articles or podcasts, Buddhist Geeks podcasts, talking about this exact subject. And that, to me, yeah, that is new, right? The availability of all of that information and rapidly increasing the, the, the feedback loop for how it gets processed and, and, and fixed in. Yeah, interesting. Um, toward the end of the book, you you know make some predictions about the future. You also uh, um, kind of acknowledge going in how difficult it is to predict the future, especially given what we just said um, about the nature of change and how change itself is changing really rap- rapidly. Um, that said, I thought you touched on some interesting um, some interesting themes there. Themes you know connected to, for instance, uh, neurodharma, kind of how the contemplative neuroscience field is changing and evolving, and also the ways in which that might uh, eventually translate into particular technologies. Something we explore extensively in the you know contemplative technology show. Um, I'm curious, yeah, as you look at the future, you know, which is hard to do. Um, what are the things that you're struck by the most as you look at Dharma and the way it's changing? So I think the one prediction I feel comfortable in making is that we ain't seen nothing yet. Uh, <laughs> I think we really are at a, like a point of inflection in the Western Dharma. And um, it was funny, I asked uh, Richie Davidson, you know, the noted neurodharmist, uh, or neurodharmogian, if uh, what he thought, you know, what's like the most important next thing that's going to happen. And he said this a few times. He said, uh, it's not actually my data, scientific data. Now it's going to be the econometric data. Mm. You know, once we can really establish and quantify the decrease in healthcare utilization, for example, uh, that, that uh, mindfulness interventions bring about, it'll become pretty quickly clear. I mean, we all know this, right? But it's just not been established. It'll become pretty quickly clear that this is like the cheapest intervention you could imagine that could save billions of dollars per year across the U.S. healthcare system. And that's, you know, it's going to explode. Right. I mean, that's going to be something that's utilized by capitalism is what's going to spread the dharma. Right. And the insurance companies and schools and, you know, the military and all of those places. And we may that may make us feel a little uneasy. Right. In the more dedicated practitioner community. But I think it is going to happen. And like I said before, hopefully it will be a gateway drug for really deeper practice Um, that I feel really comfortable about predicting uh, because it's already happening. You know, I think where it gets really fancy and, and uncertain is in the more. The, the cooler, farther reaches of science fiction, neurodharma. And I don't know if you've had folks like that on, on, on these broadcasts, but it's, there are fun conversations. And Daniel loves going into them. You know, like, so you're, you're going to have this drug and it's going to be able to perfectly simulate the fourth jhana and you're going to take it and it's going to last 15 minutes. And you're going to, and maybe that's true. You know, I mean, it would be interesting if, if we're just at this intermediate stage where we're like clunking around with these old technologies 
but you know you'll you'll have an embeddable wearable system attached to the back of your neck or something that you know that in, improves your prefrontal cortex performance relative to the amygdala and you know boom you may as well you don't need to sit every morning um that's all science fiction but it's not too remote from where you know some of the experimental uh, neuroscience is now and god only knows right i mean it, it starts to sound like brave new world and and uh, dystopian fantasies uh, when we really think about the possibilities of that but i think for me one reason that I, I I don't make that prediction is uh, futurism I find is always kind of wrong, you know, transhumanism and extropianism and so on. And they're they're totally fun, but I need a few more I need a few more drinks of whiskey before I can take it seriously. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.